Attention all international medical students and graduates. Are you looking to improve your residency competitiveness and achieve your dream program match? Look no further. Introducing the 2023 IMG Roadmap course, the online program that will boost your personal and professional growth. This comprehensive course offers life cohort-based coaching from a seasoned expert, me, along with personalized feedback, templates, and even demos. You'll leave with a solid understanding of your personalized IMG journey and the skills you need to enhance it. You'll ditch the overwhelm, and the best part? You can learn at your own pace from anywhere in the world. Whether you're a first-year medical student or a graduate seeking concise, practical coaching to improve your CV, this is the perfect investment for a successful career in the U.S. The IMG Roadmap is here. Be the first to know when the doors open in April of 2023. Sign up right now at drninaloom.com forward slash waitlist. Again, that's drninaloom.com forward slash waitlist. Sure. So I think the first thing, first question that needs to be answered is, if you like it enough to do it for the rest of your life, if this is something you enjoy, if this is the kind of physician you want to be, because most medical students or most students don't go into medicine thinking that they'll never see a patient again. And that idea can be a bit challenging. I struggled with that initially, but then I realized that this is my path and I need to focus on getting it accomplished. The IMG Roadmap is the only podcast dedicated to coaching international medical graduates and success blueprints for this unique pathway. I am Dr. Nina Loom, your host, a previous IMG turned hospital medicine physician, healthcare administrator, speaker, and coach. I empower, encourage, and equip you with actionable steps that you can take towards the residency position of your dreams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the IMG Roadmap Podcast, the only podcast where I get you resources and information from physicians who are just like you, who are doing exactly what you want to do, which is become U.S.-based physicians. All right. So today's guest is Dr. Malham Siddiqui, and I'm just going to go ahead and welcome her to the show. Welcome, Dr. Malham. How are you? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure to have you. So can you tell us where you're calling from today? I'm calling from New York City. Woohoo, the big apple. So tell us a little bit <laughs> about yourself. So I'm Maham. I'm an IMG born and brought up in Pakistan. That's where I went to medical school. I went to the Aga Khan University uh, to a five-year MBBS program. And that's where I discovered my love for radiology. And that's what I do for a living now. So I moved to New York City about four years ago, right after graduating. And I've been in the city doing different kinds of research. And now I'm a resident here. Congratulations on matching into radiology. So I'm sure our listeners are going to have tons of questions they want to know, well, you graduated from Khan University, but are you a U.S. IMG or a non-U.S. IMG? So when I came to the United States, I was on a J-1 research visa. But before I applied for the match in 2020, 
I did have a green card at the time, so I would be a U.S. IMG. So you applied into residency as a U.S. IMG. Thank you. Yes. Just some more questions in regards to that. When did you graduate medical school in respect to your application of 2020? So I graduated in November 2016 and I applied in 2020. So I was already like three full years, three and a half years out of medical school at that point. And did you, were you practicing as a radiologist in after graduation from Aga Khan University or was this a new pathway for you? No, I had just completed medical school as in the MBBS program. And I did not have any clinical training outside of that when I first moved here. I chose not to do an internship back home because I knew I would have to do one once I get into residency in the United States. And I decided to take a different path. I decided to pursue clinical research instead for a few years and then apply to residency. So your decision to go into clinical research was deliberate. It wasn't one of those where you just sort of stumbled upon it. You deliberately decided to do research. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So during medical school, we used to get, I I mean, in the final year of medical school, we get about two or three months to get more clinical experience outside of your home institution or outside of the country. So I chose to come to the U.S. at the time as a medical student to do some electives. And when I came here and saw how radiology is practiced in the United States, my experience was mainly based at a bigger medical center in New York City and then in Maryland. And I just fell in love with the daily workflow. And I decided to pursue radiology in the United States. But as an IMG, I knew it would be a more challenging path. And I would need some sort of research, some sort of work experience to really make it easier for myself in the long run. So that's what I decided to do right after graduation. And so how did you find your research position and what was it focused on? Seeing, seeing as you already, sounds like you were very determined as to what pathway you were going to take. You had already a resolve in your mind that you were pursuing radiology. So you really just kind of were tailoring your career according to what you were wanting to pursue so how did you find those research positions and were they pertinent to radiology or was it in a different specialty? So, yes, it was very deliberate. And I actually, one of the places where I didn't elect it, I was very transparent with them. I told them that this is my plan A, that this is what I see myself doing in like 10, 20, 25 years. And I'm open to doing research. I'm open to taking full-time employment as a researcher. And I was really lucky to work with people who really saw that I was very serious about it and helped me connect to people who would be able to help me out. So I interviewed for a research position at the same hospital and I was lucky enough to get it. So really, I think there's a lesson in what you're sharing that I just want to reiterate to our listeners is that even while you were at this institution as a student, you started your networking process with them. And you were dedicated and deliberate in your actions to where they could perceive your actions as, for lack of better words, worthy of something else as far as you were positioning yourself so that you could not be denied a position just because of how much you brought to the table. I mean, is that a fair assumption to say that 
you left a good impression while you worked with them enough to be able to get the recommendations and connections to build on to your second application for research? Yeah, that is a really kind way to put it. (laughs) But I guess that is true. I told them that this is what I need to do with my life. And I'm not afraid to commit for a year, two years, three years. I don't care how long it takes. I didn't really have a backup plan, which looking in retrospect was not the smartest idea. But at the time, it just made sense. And sometimes I believe when we don't have a backup plan, it's because we're so resolved in the thing that we're pursuing that we can't see ourselves doing anything else. And I honestly believe that, yes, in retrospect, when you look back, you're like, man, that was not the smartest idea. What if it didn't work out? But maybe that's also why it worked out. Because when you set in your mind that this is the only way out, oftentimes you continue to seek until you find a way. But once there's a plan B, it's easy to like, you know, maybe let things go easy and sort of find another pathway, which is not wrong to have a plan B at all. I think people should plan around a plan A and a plan B and possibly plan C. But I also noticed that there is some credit to be given when you only have one plan because you give it your 100%. And more often than not, in some cases, it does work out. In other cases, it doesn't. But it sounds like in your case, it did. So let's talk a little bit more about your application process into radiology. Oftentimes, a lot of IMGs are scared away from even building interest in radiology, even though they have that, but they don't build upon it because they feel like it's too far out of their reach. Can you talk to us maybe about how you your USMLE performance, did they have a role to play, your research? What are the things that you think are beneficial for another IMG who's listening, who has that subtle interest in radiology and is not quite sure how to get started? Sure. So I think the first thing, first question that needs to be answered is if you like it enough to do it for the rest of your life, if this is something you enjoy, if this is the kind of physician you want to be, because most medical students or most students don't go into medicine thinking that they'll never see a patient again. And that idea can be a bit challenging. I struggled with that initially, but then I realized that this is my path and I need to focus on getting it accomplished. So for me, as far as uh, USMLE goes, I took step one after finishing medical school and I studied for about six months dedicated. And I was, I, I would say that I was pretty happy with the score I got. And at the time I was basing all of this on the data that comes out of the NRMP. Every year after every match cycle, they publish statistics from that cycle. And that's basically what I used at the time to guide myself. So I was looking at the average step one score, where I need to be to be able to be comfortable in the upcoming match cycles. And the same would go for research. They publish exactly how many research items each candidate, successful candidate had. And then I would put myself in their position and be like, okay, I need two years of research. I need a score above 245 at at the time, step one, the average score for a matched USIMG was. So I was like, I need to be comfortably above 245 to feel confident about my application. And it was the same about other categories, how many LORs, the quality of the LORs. So all of that was based on data for me. I think that is absolutely brilliant because when I work with IMGs in a private coaching session, one of the things I help them, especially when they're still trying to figure out 
how to start is extrapolating from data because there's a lot of unfounded information on the internet, a lot of blogs and opinionated people who don't use the data to start. And so sometimes it's very important to use that data to differentiate because it varies from specialty to specialty, what you just mentioned. Depending on what specialty one is interested in, they'll find this information dramatically different. But the one common theme is obviously the higher that score goes, the more favorable it is across the board. So thanks for sharing about that, because that's something that I see a lot of people don't realize that they can use for their own personal circumstances. And it's not a hard stop rule, but it's definitely data and data you can extrapolate and make associations, which could be very valuable for the IMG journey. So for those who are interested in this data, you can find it on the NRMP's website. It's free to the public. I use it a lot. And there are so many different reference tables that they have as well. So just in your browser, type in nrmp.org and you'll, you can even put it in Google, NRMP results, and you'll be able to get these PDFs. It's a lot of information, but if you just focus on what you're looking for, for your specialty, you should be able to get it. So thanks for giving us insight into that process as well. Other questions that we have for you today is, you know, it sounds like obviously you did really well on your exams from our assumptions that we can make based on how you shared it. And you went to a pretty good school. It's well known. And so other I'm just listening, they feel like they can't relate, right? Because maybe they don't have a score that makes them feel comfortable. They feel insecure about their score or they feel insecure about a part of their journey. Did you experience any challenges personally that you want to share with us and maybe give us some encouragement as to how we can maneuver some of the challenges that we face as international medical grads? Absolutely. So unfortunately, the score is an important part of the application, but it's not your entire application. It's just one part of it. And of course, it's a test of your intelligence, but that's not all of you or who you are. And there's so many parts of the application that you can work on that might help you compensate for a score that you're not comfortable with, you're not happy with. I think it would be a bit short-sighted to give up on your dream just based on a three-digit number. I understand that not everyone is in the position where they might be able to compensate. And that's where a plan B would make more sense. But I think just giving up on the dream entirely is a bit short-sighted because right now you might settle for another field, another specialty, but you might be really unhappy in 10 years and burnt out. And that's what I really did not see myself, did not want for myself, I guess. I didn't want to be the person who burnt out three years out of residency. And even beyond, and thanks for bringing that up, because even beyond burnout is the concept of a wanting, a longing. Exactly. Not be satisfied without actually going to pursue that thing. And I experienced that recently, which prompted me into going back to do emergency medicine. But it's not necessarily only burnout. Burnout is one aspect, but I think is can happen even if you're in a specialty that you'd love, you could still experience burnout. But there is also a longing for wanting to practice in a different specialty that you love that you neglected, which I think is far more painful in so many degrees. Because with burnout, you can always step back, get into the right therapy and you know, right coaching and guidance, counseling, and readjust or cut back on your hours. But there's something to be said about practicing in the specialty that you have 
you have interest in quite all right, but have a higher longing for something else. And that's a weirdness that cannot be fulfilled with anything. And so I really caution IMDs who are wanting to just take what I consider an easy way out when they could plan their lives and give themselves time and be patient enough to maybe do that extra research here or take that extra two years and work on some other things that would help them in that original pathway. The only problem with that that I've encountered is when it becomes a route for procrastination or avoidance. But it sounds like if you're meticulous and you plan well and you have a, you know, set plans for yourself and you say, okay, I'm going for a competitive specialty. I'm going to dedicate some time into research, but it's just not only research. Like in that period, I'm doing my examinations and I'm aiming for high scores and actually scoring high on them. I think that person who is diligent and maybe a little bit more meticulous about the process can still achieve their goal in the long, in the long run. It's when it's, and there's no plan and there's no method and there's no strategy, then I think we are often left wanting. But I think we kind of even segue into this whole topic of desire and longing after trying to, you know, maybe understand some of the challenges and, and words of recommendations that you have for other people, which is not to give up in spite, not to give up on what you want to do in spite of what the trends are. Because I think oftentimes we give up quickly on pursuing or trying out for something because of the trend or what we're being told. I mean, is that, is that right? I want to make sure that I'm saying what interpreting your words accurately. I think I agree with you 100%. And I can really relate to this. And that's, I think the reason why I decided to look up the data myself when I was going through that journey, because I think I can't even count on my fingers the number of times I was told that I'm too ambitious my dreams are too big and it was not going to work out. And if I had listened to any of those people, I, I would not be where I am. And I'm, I'm just happy that I didn't listen to any of that. And as you said, I would always, if I had tried to pursue another field, I might be happy. I might not be as happy as I could be, but I would always have that feeling of longing. That what if I had pursued my dream? And that's what I was really afraid of, that I don't want to be that person who doesn't try and then regrets it. I would rather try and fail instead of not trying and regretting it for the rest of my life. I love that. I would rather try and fail than not trying and regretting that for the rest of my life. I think that is so important what you just said. And I share in that 100% and definitely... Oh, I think that's so beautiful. Very well said. Yep. I hope all the listeners, you know, rewind that and listen to it again and again and do some introspection in your life and ask yourself, would I be happy if I take this pathway? And by taking this pathway, am I willing to fully commit? Because that's another problem that I noticed. I don't say a problem, but it's a common denominator that I noticed with coaching I am Jesus. Some of us are not fully committed. Like we're not fully committed to the pain of the process. We're not fully committed to believing within ourselves. We're not fully committed to canceling out the noise from other people. Like you said, you can count on more than one. You probably can count on one hand because there were many of them who thought you had unrealistic goals. But I think your commitment speaks to you doing your research and kind of pressing forward and playing and being okay with deferring things out and working on your research prior hand. 
And so I think a lot of IMGs sometimes are not fully committed, to be honest. Have you noticed that or am I just blowing steam? No, no, that is true. But I feel like there is no other way. You do have to put the work in and then expect a decent outcome. And just being realistic about putting the work in and it's always possible that it's not going to work out when I was in a professional research for a living, a researcher for a living. And then that's all I did. I did not have any guarantees at the end of this time that I'm investing in my career, that it would work out. And sometimes you have to take that chance and just go with it. There was absolutely this huge possibility that I was spending all my time and energy doing research. And I, I really, really enjoyed doing it. I loved my job at the time. There was always this possibility that it would not work out. And at the end of that entire thing, I didn't have a plan B. But as I said, I, it was worth it to me to invest that time into my future. Absolutely. And I'm sure that's a daunting feeling when what we're working at may seem like what we may remain in for the rest of our lives. And it may feel like we cannot, but we may not potentially also taste the other thing that we desire, which goes back to that longing we were talking about earlier too. And so, you know, not to diss anyone that's working towards their process, but I often think that sometimes in being daring is how you get to where you want to be. You have to dare to do it for it to even remotely work out, right? It's like, if you don't even try to dare, then you don't even stand a chance. But if you're not daring enough to say, hey, I'm just going to forge forward, even though I can't see how it's going to work out, and then give myself that chance to fail or redirect, if we're not daring enough, then we miss we miss out on, on all of that. And I hope that that's an important tidbit for everyone listening so sometimes you may not see what your networking or what your current work is doing for you on a day-to-day basis, but you have to keep daring to pursue your goal in spite of not seeing how it's all going to work out. So let's talk a little bit more about your recommendations for those who are preparing for an application into radiology. What are the key components of the application, such as a personal statement is important, how many letters of recommendation should I prepare from a radiologist? U.S. clinical experience in radiology research. What are those things that you believe play a factor in receiving interviews for radiology programs? I think just approaching the structure of the residency is important because most radiology programs in the country are advanced, meaning that they start at the PGY2 level. And the expectation is that the candidate should be able to find their own intern year which is very different from other advanced fields. My understanding is that anesthesiology, for example, most programs are categorical and they would also provide that PGY1 intern year experience. But for radiology, there's only a handful of categorical programs in the country. So just understanding that, yes, you need to apply to the advanced program that starts at a PGY2 level. So all programs are recruiting two years in advance but you also need to apply to a prelim year or a transitional year in the same cycle. So you're really preparing for two different matches and you really need to secure two spots in the same cycle. And that's when you would be considered fully matched. So when it comes to applying to radiology, the documentation is slightly different. 
versus a prelim year in medicine or surgery. So just understanding that concept is, is vital. So let's start with some definitions. Can you explain to us what an advanced program is? Because some IMGs may not know the difference between an advanced and a preliminary. Yes. So an advanced program would be any field, for example, radiology, where they expect you to be done with interneer by the time they hired you. For example, I did a prelim year in internal medicine from 2021 to 2022, July. And when I finished interneer, I became a PGY2 slash R1 resident in radiology. So that's the structure of an advanced program. A categorical program is where they would give you the intern year and they would also give you the radiology residency under one roof, which was not my case. So since you applied to two separate programs, can you give us some more detail as to how you went about that process, what that looked like for you? Yes. So some basic stuff is always going to be the same when it comes to the application process. Your scores stay the same. Your letters can be the same for the most part. Your personal statement can be the same, but it will come down to small details. Like you need to apply to a year prelim year in internal medicine with three letters of recommendation. They don't all have to be from medicine. It can be two medicine letters and one radiology letter because they do. the program also has an understanding of why you're coming to them. You're coming to them just to be an intern for a year, and then you'll move on to whatever you need to do in life. Whereas radiology, this is just how I did it, and this is my experience. And this will come down to whether or not you can produce this many letters when it comes to applying to radiology. I applied with four radiology letters and one IM letter. And that's absolutely not required or mandatory. I believe you just need one radiology letter and the other can be from any core rotations you did during medical school or after. But the personal statement, I think, is I always tell my friends that this is the one piece of documentation that is 100% in your control. This is how you will introduce yourself to these programs where you apply to. And this is how they will get to know you on paper. So I think this is one of the most important parts of the application itself. And in your personal statement, since you did two, did you include your desire for radiology early on with your internal medicine statement? Or was I did. It, okay. And you, why, why did you do it like that? Just share with us your, your reasoning. So the reason I did that is because my plan was always to go for a prelim year. I know a lot of people try to apply to preliminary positions and categorical positions in the same cycle. And as I was saying earlier, I did not really have a backup plan. And my plan was always to just do medicine for a year and move on. I did not see myself as an internal medicine physician or a gastroenterologist or a cardiologist in the long run. So I didn't really make an effort to sell myself as a categorical resident when I wasn't. Got it. But obviously there are some people that I know and and you may also know who would use this as a route to have a plan B and say, hey, I'm just going to put out an, a preliminary and categorical IM as well as a radiology. So if I don't get my radiology position, I can fall back into IM. But you chose not to do that because you were resolved in what you wanted. Exactly. And I think that might actually be the smarter strategy to have two different personal statements written up 
one categorical and one preliminary, just have different drafts and you can attach different versions of the personal statement to different programs you're applying to. And then the ARS website actually allows you to do that. So if that is something you want to do, you want to have a backup plan, you are very okay with being an internist, then absolutely everyone should do that. Right. Okay. So looking back at your journey so far, what advice would you give yourself just in regards to your overall process? Is there something that you would do differently that you recommend others consider? I think maybe it wouldn't be. I, I think it would just be the smartest, smarter thing to do to, to have a plan B. And in my case, I am. I realize how fortunate I am that it worked out when I did send my application and I got my first interview the very next day. And I had a really busy interview season until like the end of February, a week before rank list, I was still getting interviews. So I felt okay about my application by the end, but that might not be the case for other people. In that case, I think it just makes sense to overapply, apply as broadly as you can. And, and that might also mean that applying to more than one fields at a time and having a backup plan doesn't hurt. And also just not listening to every opinion that everybody has around you. Just spending some time with your ideas and what makes you happy, what brings you joy in life and what you see yourself doing comfortably for the next 20, 30, 40 years. Just taking the time to think about that now might actually help later. I love that. I love that you said, take some time out to create your own ideas. And, you know, it's much like studying for the USMLE or any exam. It's been my understanding, especially having taken so many of these tests at this point in my career, that the more resources you use for one test, the less likely you are to really learn anything from all of them. But the fewer resources you use, you can focus your attention on learning what you need to know. And I think the same applies when it comes to this whole process of getting matched into a residency program is the more people you allow to influence your decision-making, the less likely you are to focus on the right things to do. But if you can select a few mentors that you're going to heed to and then spend some time with your own thoughts and ideas and help yourself believe in yourself, amongst other things, obviously, and your faith, then alone, you become really, you have a higher chance of, you know, keeping your path and taking one foot ahead of the other. And that's really how you go ahead to create what you would define as your own medical success story. So I really appreciate, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on because in so many ways you have sort of shared your story and really proved to us that this is true. And, you know, after listening to this podcast, I'm sure there's going to be several people that want to learn more from you. Do you have any social media that you want us to share or how anyone can connect with you? Do you, do you want to connect with people? <laughs> you know, Absolutely. How, how can we, you know, if we have follow-up questions, how can our, can our listeners reach out to you? Your listeners can reach out to me via email or they can send me a private message on Instagram. My email is maham underscore S-I-D-D-I-U-Q-E at hotmail.com. 
And my Instagram page is M-A-H-A-M underscore S underscore R-A-N-A. So we'll have Dr. Siddiqui's Instagram handle in the chat, not in the chat, in the show notes, I misspoke. And you'll be able to click guys and be connected with her profile. And we'll also have all of her episodes up on the IMG Roadmap podcast, which is available on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and even on Instagram now. And last but not least on drninaloom.com. So thank you guys for listening. And thank you, Dr. C, for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us. I know you're on neuroradiology call today. So we want to give you back some hours of your evening as we're recording this in the later hours of the day. But we really appreciate your time and for sitting with us and for sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you so much for having me. Look at you. I'm so proud of you for listening until the very end. And because of that, you deserve a reward. And I want you to go right now to drninaloom.com and download any of my free ebooks, whether it's for electives or clinical rotations, or even just whatever trials come your way as you navigate your IMG journey. Stay tuned for another episode coming up next.